I am your host, Dave Moten. I am both the author of Mindframe and the narrator of the regular chapter episodes. With me, as always, is producer extraordinaire and uh, my partner in crime, Brent Van Tassel. He is the co-founder of the Podbelly Podcast Network, and we are, of course, a proud member of the Podbelly Network, and we are a Podbelly original. If you want to learn some stuff about how to podcast, if you've got a podcast of your own and you're trying to get the word spread about it, or if you just want to find a a nice podcast to listen to, go to podbelly.com and you can find some informational stuff as well as some directories. So uh, check it out at podbelly.com. As always, we always want to mention at the top of the show that we are proudly sponsored by El Yucateco Hot Sauce. It is our favorite, the king of flavor, as they say. Upvote your taste buds and try El Yucateco. Great sauce. It's good stuff. Every so often I see it. It takes it takes me out of movies. Every so often I'll be watching a movie and people will be at a diner and I see a bottle of it and it just like breaks the reality of the scene. And I just nerd out and say, oh, there's a bottle of Teco on the table because that's how much we love it. So if you like hot sauce, do check it out. We don't just take them as a sponsor because we want the money, even though we do. Um, we do it because we really love the product um, and we love the relationship that we have with them. So check out El Yucateco. And as always, if uh, you like listening to the show, if uh, the the narrative structure and the the jumps through time and, and the the illusions and, and so forth are a little bit too difficult to chew on, then definitely think about becoming a patron. Because if you go to uh, patreon.com backslash mindframe podcast, uh, you can sign up for the tier where you get the sit down episodes where myself, Zach Smith and Brent uh, talk about chapter by chapter. We do every chapter. Um, we talk about what's going on, answer questions where questions are answerable. I duck questions if it's going to spoil something later on or if it's something I haven't fully established yet. But it's fun. It's kind of like a second podcast behind the first podcast. It's not just the narrative. It's us talking about it and sci-fi in general and writing and writer's block and all sorts of stuff. So if you like sci-fi, if you like this podcast, or if you're a writer, um, then you might want to give that a a listen. So go to patreon.com. Uh, slash mindframe podcast to find that. So here we have on this episode, chapter 25, and we get back to Teddy's rotation of chapters. Um, We last saw Teddy as he was heading to move up to the old dame hotel and finish the construction on it, um, which really meant that he had left his own framing chamber and had moved into Mariel Barbeau's framing chamber on the Eleanor Gray and uh, things weren't going so well within his own mind frame as as everything switched over. But of course, spoiler alert from the previous chapter, um, we saw the Alpha tell him that it was his turn to remember his past so he could finally make a decision about what he was going to do um, in the present. So uh, we start to see that past in this chapter. So uh, sit back and give it a listen and hear the beginning of the story of Teddy. Chapter 25. Teddy, 2125. Two words, Bruce said, watching Darcy tap two fingers on the back of her forearm. Two syllables. Darcy nodded to agree and then mimed the action of opening a book. Book title, Bruce added, and Darcy nodded yes again. Darcy then began to mime out the action of waking up and yawning. Morning, Bruce said. Then in a burst, alarm clock, waking up, tired, and Darcy held a palm out to tell him to stop. Darcy then proceeded to quickly go through the actions of a day. She mimed waking up, eating cereal, driving somewhere, typing on a keypad, eating lunch, 
driving back the other way, and then laying down in bed again to go to sleep. Bruce blurted out, A full day, Monday, hump day, life, adulting, to which Darcy repeated the going to sleep part. Nighttime? Darcy nodded yes and indicated with her fingers that Bruce needed to go back. Night. Darcy clapped and nodded her head vigorously. Theodore Brown watched his fiancé's face come alive as Bruce hopped up and down a little bit on the couch with his butt. He thought Bruce was just about the cutest thing when he got excited to the point of uncontrollable body movement, which was one of the main reasons Teddy loved playing drunken charades. Mariel was Teddy's partner for this round, so they sat on the love seat together. Rooney sat on the floor with his back against the recliner and his wife Sheila sitting in between his legs. There was plenty of room on the furniture, but they were enjoying a couple's moment. Mariel nudged Teddy in the ribs and said, Only Darcy would start with the morning to get you to guess the night. She said it loudly, her voice aiming at Darcy. Darcy laughed and flipped her off with an exaggerated birdie, her body still in the spirit of miming. Mariel and Teddy each took a drink. The opposing team just got a word, so everyone else had to drink. Those were the rules. Rooney and Sheila drank as well. Darcy started to mime something else with her stomach, a wide arc. Teddy thought she was doing fat, but realized she was doing pregnant. Darcy brushed her flat hand across her abdomen to indicate there was no more pregnancy and then swept her arms together to rock them as if she held a baby. Birth, preggers, baby, rockabye baby, Bruce said, shouting out a verbal diarrhea of guesses. Darcy kept nodding and rolling her finger through the air to indicate Bruce needed to keep going. And then he said, night baby, night night, mother, night mothers. Bruce screamed and bounced up and down on the couch again. Darcy bowed. Everyone groaned and took another drink. Night Mothers was the second book written by Eleanor Gray after the war. It was another biography, a crushing indictment on pre-war capitalism, focusing on how her own mother spent her time planning and hosting massive, extravagant parties at night to keep her husband's wealthy oil executive friends happy to live in a small, hot town where nothing even remotely social seemed to happen. Eleanor Gray contrasted her own mother with Sochi, another member of the resistance. The book talked about how she had to work nights on top of her full-time day job just to pay the rent and relied on church donations for diapers and baby formula. Well, at least before WorldGov invaded the west coast of America. Within months, WorldGov's refugee aid, temporary housing, and parental assistance was better than anything so she had experienced struggling to get by. Night mothers focused on the two radically different types of nights lived by two radically different types of mothers. Bruce sat down beside Teddy. Teddy gave him a kiss on the cheek and took another drink of wine. You're going to drink without someone else forcing you to? Guess I know who's driving you home tonight, Bruce joked. They were at Teddy's apartment, so neither one of them was driving home. Teddy laughed, saying, hey, when Sheila brings the wine, I do not say no. She always brought wine and spirits that were a league above anything a single entertainment shit could ever buy. They were plaza-level goods, though nobody in her family was under enough of a deviant security threat to be given access to the plaza for safe shopping. I don't know where she gets this stuff, Bruce agreed. I have my ways, Sheila said in a mock sinister voice, holding her wine glass up. Every Friday night was drunken charades. Teddy, Mariel, and Darcy all attended the Global Police Force's Terrestrial Naval Academy. They would get done with their studies at the academy every Friday at noon and would be back to the apartment by two. Darcy didn't live with Teddy and Mariel, but come Friday night she might as well have. There would be some light naps, a late lunch, and everyone would convene. 
Bruce would come when he was done with work. He worked in WorldGov's auditing divisions. He was at the Department of Resolutions and he balanced chits for people and resolved conflicts and errors. Rooney and Sheila would come when they rolled out of their own apartment. He was a musician who had scheduled gigs Saturday through Wednesday nights. Sheila did some pickup bartending near the academy on random days through the week, typically wherever Rooney was playing for the night. Teddy and Mariel didn't have the largest apartment, but they had the best view of the Pacific, so the location was sort of de facto. They'd drink a bit too much, sleep in on Saturday until a greasy breakfast, recuperate and relax. The five-day work week was sacrosanct to WorldGov, so everyone got two full days off, even off of study while at a college or one of the academies. Then, every Saturday night, this clique went down to the coffee house to watch Rooney play piano for one of his bands. It was a jazz quartet called Stan Gets Davis, which did a mix of bebop and bossa nova standards. After the gig, the clique would stay up late drinking coffee, shift to some beers or more of Sheila's amazing wine. Sunday was Teddy's couple day and belonged to him and Bruce by themselves. They'd usually take a late breakfast in bed, go antiquing for Bruce's place if they had the chits, and then have a picnic on one of the secluded beaches off of the Pacific Coast Highway, do some beachcombing, and maybe even risk getting a little frisky out in nature if the grotto was secluded enough. Teddy wouldn't call this weekend pattern a rut, since everyone had so much fun doing it, but it was like clockwork. Okay, Theodore, Rooney said with his gravelly, high-pitched voice. Your turn, yeah? Indeed it is. Teddy jumped up and rubbed his hands together. He fiddled with his skinter face and got the system to randomly assign a charades term. It was Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. He shook his head at the complexity. He wondered where to start, especially since Mariel didn't like pre-war rock and may very well have never heard this song or album. He had to count the words on his fingers and make sure not to mouth the words as he did so. He got into a good proper charade stance and held up six fingers. 30 seconds, Darcy predicted to Rooney. Yet your mind, girl, it'll be like 10, he dissented. Six words, Mariel said. Teddy nodded. Teddy pretended he was singing into an old-fashioned microphone. Song, Mariel said. Teddy nodded again. Teddy held up his hand as if holding a baton and swung his other hand to the same beat he marched to like a drum major. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Mariel asked. Her face was a nod of inquiry. She wasn't wondering so much if she was right, Teddy knew, but wondering why she knew it so quickly. It was just a thing between her and Teddy. He'd never met anyone like her, nobody he was in such sync with. Teddy snapped his fingers. Sheila said, Like what, five seconds? Ridiculous. I'd asked to prove they aren't cheating, but we already know the answer. Rooney asked, Why don't we all concede this round? They need new partners. Let these two little creepy messengers declare a win and split up. Messengers is right, Darcy added. You two are ludicrous. You should so totally take the test. You like fully read each other's minds on the daily. It's scary, Darcy said. I'm scared. Goosebumps. Mariel said, fuck that. Live on a spaceship? A fucking spaceship where you die because a nozzle is the wrong gasket or some shit? Going crazy and pushing around naval people with psychic mojo? Hard pass. I have a life to live. The lariat is closing, Rooney said with a smirk. It was typically said by people as justification for their self-sacrifice. Teddy hadn't known Rooney long, but he knew the man was not one for sacrificing much of anything. Darcy said, No, not to actually go be a framer, just to see. 
It's not like you have to enlist once you get your results. Aren't you two curious? You finish each other's sentences. Darcy shifted her focus and talked towards Rooney and Sheila. When we got home from the academy this afternoon, Teddy went into the kitchen and fixed a bean paste sandwich but didn't know why. Then, Mariel just walks in talking about needing to fix a bean sandwich because she's starving. Teddy already made it. That's a constant. You guys are totally psychic. Maybe we should, Teddy admitted. He didn't want to live the life of a framer either, though he knew that once you retired from framer life, you got bumped up in your chit dispersion to the upper tier that's reserved for people doing hazardous work. That, coupled with the fact that you spent virtually no chits while being a framer, so you had quite an accumulation by retirement. There wasn't wealth anymore, but post-framer life had to be one of luxury. If he did that, which he wouldn't, maybe Teddy could afford the crazy wine that Sheila brought every Friday. I so utterly and completely need to know, Sheila said. I've never met anyone else who even shows any signs. You guys aren't curious? Mariel shook her head no, mid-drink. Sheila's face formed a wicked twist. Tell you what, you two go, and I'll bring you a case of wine to split next weekend. If either of you are psychic, I'll bring you a case to keep for yourself. Teddy turned to Mariel with his eyebrows raised and his head cocked to the side. Bruce was holding Teddy's hand, and he had leaned forward so he could see both Bruce and Mariel at the same time. You people are all crazy, like nobody passes the test, Mariel said. Teddy felt the shift. Mariel had just made her mind up. He sat back with a smile on his face. Fine. We do it Wednesday afternoon so I can get out of my ballast calculations class. Fuck it, Mariel said, and swallowed the last of her wine. Teddy walked through the corridors of the Futures and Placement Building on the far east side of the Academy campus. The campus for the Terrestrial Navy was much more mundane and low-tech than the space-based World Navy Academy campus several hours to the south. Much of this campus was built in a fashion that summoned either the classical structures found on an old-world university or in the new military style of the global police force. The GPF variety were accented in copper and greens and were made of wood and other renewables. The Futures and Placement Building was the latter, summoning images of an old Aquanaut's copper-domed helmet. Teddy had never had a reason to go inside the building, since it was typically one only used by seniors and graduates. He walked in and checked the notepad that he had placed on the inside of his wrist. He liked the motion of flicking the wrist to check things, and he thought it added a bit of privacy compared to wearing it on the surface of the forearm where any passerby could read your arm. It said F&P, third floor, suite 319, Charles Kumo. Teddy saw the elevator next to the stairs. The stairs were open air and integral to the aesthetics of the building. A massive mosaic was laid out with colored tile on the wall running up the stairwell. It was in an ancient Roman style, and on the bottom was a man being pulled in a chariot by two horses with swirling fishtails, and beneath him a banner read Neptune. Teddy climbed up to the third floor where a woman was now depicted in the tile work. She was nude but for a hang of fabric from her shoulder that managed to cover her pubic area. She wore a wreath of seaweed and was pulled by two dolphins. A banner over her head said Salicea. The art found through campus was often stunning, and this piece was quickly in the top ten as far as Teddy was concerned. He left the stairs and found a directory that pointed him to the north side of the building. As he walked the halls, he saw the doors had either the names of people, quite often with their naval ranks, 
or departments such as environmental impacts and naval waste reclamation. Toward the end of the hall, he found 319. There was a frosted glass window with the words Framer Testing and then the name Charles Kumo beneath it. Teddy didn't know what to expect, but he thought it would have been a bigger affair. It looked like a small faculty office. Teddy very much wanted to get tested at the same time as Mariel, but when he talked to Kumo to set up his appointment, it was a hard no. Kumo was a most accommodating man, willing to meet any time, day or night, but bringing someone else was apparently out of the question. Teddy stopped to knock on the door but realized it was an office building, so he just walked in, wondering if that was appropriate. He walked through a very small foyer that was maybe two steps deep. It terminated with another door that had no handle and large hinges, like a swinging door to a professional kitchen. He pushed it open and stepped through. Inside was a small office that looked more like a coffee house than a mysterious branch of physics that made WorldGov work. An abnormally tall and lean man in blousy black robes stood with his back to the door. He was cutting a lime and putting a wedge in a rock glass filled with what looked like carbonated water. There was a full wet bar there with all the basics of mixology. Teddy wondered if the man had just fixed a gin and tonic. Theodore, he said, a bit excitedly without turning around. Teddy admired his frame. He had extraordinarily broad shoulders, and his lats and triceps were defined enough to notice them even through his blousy uniform. Mr. Kumo, Teddy asked, though he was pretty certain this was him. His deep voice was distinct even from a few brief phone calls. Just Kumo, please, the man said, turning around. Teddy was surprised to find that he looked Japanese, even though suddenly he realized it was a Japanese-sounding name. He had never met anyone from that island nearly this tall. He had to be close to seven feet. I just fixed a vodka tonic for myself and then thought to make you something. Right now, it's just a club soda with lime. What would you like me to do to finish your drink? Please don't say dump it out. The soda's fine, Teddy lied. Right about now, he could use a drink. He went from laughing about it at the table this morning to suddenly being on the verge of having a panic attack. He was about to take the framing test. How about I add a splash of vodka? It won't affect the results in any way, Kumo said. Even better, Teddy agreed. Kumo poured the drink out and started from scratch. Teddy thought that was a flagrant waste of resources, and he suddenly wondered if that was already part of the test. Kumo poured the spirits in the glass and said, So you want to take the framing test? May I ask why before we get started? Um, I have a strong connection with my roommate, Mariel, the one I wanted to come with. I can finish her sentences, I know when she's hungry, when she's gone, when she's depressed. Even if she's on campus and I'm at home, it's like we share a mind. Never had that happen with anyone. And our friends said we should get tested. Interesting, Kumo said, wiping a wedge of lime around the edge of the glass, twisting it over the vodka and then dropping it in before he added the soda and ice. Most people say it's because they want to be a framer, but you do not. Not really, no. That's not the path I've ever considered, Teddy said. Kumo handed Teddy his drink and sat down on a cream-colored plush chair that already had Kumo's drink waiting next to it on a small table. Another identical chair was across from it with a small oval table in the middle. Kumo said, please, and indicated that Teddy should sit. It is a one in a million proposition getting a positive test result at random. That is, if you haven't exhibited signs or if you didn't come from a family with a genetic framer lineage. But people want it. They think it'd be cool to be psychic and imagine all sorts of parlor tricks that, frankly, are not part of the package. 
Let me start out by talking about myself, Theodore. You should never be afraid to start with yourself. I grew up on the tidal arcology that floats on the surface above Atlantis. Very busy port, hauling what they manufacture down there in the high-pressure labs. It's also the anchor point to that region's space elevator. Have you ever had cause to visit the surface of Atlantis? No, Teddy said, taking a sip of his cocktail. It was pretty good, but not something he'd ever order. Surely you've seen the vids, like a gleaming state-of-the-art Venice. All the streets are either walkable or water. No cars, just boats. And like most natives of Atlantis, I had this done. Kumo pulled down his collar and revealed that he had implants on his neck. They were a copper color, running several inches long. They were filled with hundreds of tiny hexagonal pores. Teddy had heard of these cybergills before, but had never had cause to see them in person. Kumo continued, Of course, my parents set me up early as well. They had me sequenced in utero and selected traits that would make me a better swimmer. Height, long limbs, so forth. Nothing outside of the human norm or breaking the genetic accords, of course. But what did that mean? It meant I swam. I would work the lanes through the city, and my abilities and body shape made me easily get upvoted into more swimming classes, deep diving, that sort of thing. By the time I was 18, all my vote paths led to me being a courier through the city, or an undercity welder, or working with the dolphins, something like that. Trouble was, I didn't want any of that. I spent more and more time dry, hanging out with people who were there to vacation or go up the elevator. I heard stories about life here in the Americas, or life up the lift, he said, pointing up to space. I was young and didn't want to be a canal rat for the rest of my life. My father wasn't happy with his life, though, to be fair, he didn't have my genetic and cybernetic advantages. So WorldGov announced that the first framer testing facility was opening on Atlantis. Before that, you had to travel to either Hawaii or Tijuana. I signed up. I was there the third day it opened, went through the tests, came back at a respectable score of 82, took to the training well, and they made me an offer. I became a framer without thinking twice, got out of Atlantis, was posted on the Tsiolkovsky elevator near the Philippines. My mind frame was that I was an engineer on a narrow gauge railroad train running through the plains and mountains of the American Old West. I was in that frame for almost 15 years. Eventually, the Delta messenger realized I was suffering from PTSD from inside the frame. Our train regularly had to fight off groups of bandits and hostile Native Americans. It was a very violent and, to me, perfectly real mind frame. Delta pulled me out, and I spent several months trying to remember what was what, get my feet back on the ground. It was hard for me to remember my life before the mind frame. Or, to be honest, it was hard to forget the mind frame itself. Every boom I heard was a gunshot. And I realized I didn't ever want to go back. I was tired of combat. It was very stressful mind frame, it turns out. I never went back in. The Delta agreed. So, I was pretty much torn. I left Atlantis a decade and a half earlier, and they are a proud people. They welcome newcomers with open arms, but once you leave, you're kind of dead to them. I felt I couldn't go back home. And my new home, the Old West, was gone to be, so in lieu of anything else, I stayed on with the messenger branch. The Delta suggested I run these tests once we opened the branch here at the GPF Academy. I thought that was just about perfect. So I sit before you now, drinking a vodka tonic, willing to give you the tests. But I also sit with a warning. If you're just here to find an escape from a life you want to avoid, try moving to Nepal or London 
or the outer colonies. This is not an avenue for a quick upvote. Statistically speaking, once you're a framer, it's the last upvote you'll ever have career-wise. Only 25 human beings at a time make it to Courier, and the mental power it takes to be a messenger is frankly inconceivable. Don't become a framer just to escape or gain magical powers. You'll find neither of those things here. I appreciate that, Teddy said. But I just want to take the test. Man, I feel like I would score high, but I don't know. My life is just fine. I have plans with the terrestrial navy. But you're always curious, right? Ever since I learned about messengers in grade school, I wondered if I was awakened and part of the new human race, as my teacher put it. Kubo said, that is an unfortunate turn of phrase. But not entirely wrong, is it? Kubo set down his drink but didn't answer. He stood and crossed to his desk. He picked up a clipboard and handed it to Teddy. These are the legal disclaimers that I told you about on the phone. Did you read them online? Yes. Any questions at all? None, Teddy said. Okay, here they are again. I want you to read them over, either sign them or don't. I'm going to give you some space. I'll come back in about 15 minutes. If you're still here, I assume you signed them and the final agreement and waiver. If you aren't, you'll never be troubled by us and I'll erase any indication that we've ever communicated. Take your time. Enjoy your drink. One way or the other, the next hour is going to completely change your life, Kubo said, and left through the swinging doors. So with that, we leave Teddy for the moment. When we see him next, we will begin the framing test and see what all the mystery is about. As always, if you like the fiction here, you can check out my first book, 181 Pine. It's available if you go to mindframepodcast.com. You can find that book and you can find the books of Zach Smith if you're in the mood for grabbing any fiction uh, to get a hold of. And again, at the top of the show, I always mention Podbelly because we are a member of the Podbelly Network. And uh, some other really good shows that you can track down are at least there's coffee and uh, the ectoplasm show. I just realized I was going to say I've been on the ectoplasm show twice. And then I realized I've been on at least there's coffee once. So you can check them out. Um, I've been on both of the shows. So if you're interested in hearing my own paranormal experiences or my thoughts of the COVID lockdown, I talk about those on those two shows. But even without me, they are definitely worthy. Ectoplasm show uh, recently released a beer that had uh, El Yucateco hot sauce in it. That was pretty fantastic. But you can uh, definitely check them out by going to podbelly.com. Another great way to support the show, if you uh, dig what we're doing, is to give us a like or a share or a retweet or a repost or anything on social media. Uh, subscribe, like, repost, share. It really makes a big difference. Most podcasts grow really due to word of mouth. We're a pretty small podcast, all things considered, so we don't have tons of money to throw at advertising. But even if we did, because we're part of other podcasts that do have money to throw at advertising, it is never as effective as you guys showing a fan love and support. So if you find us on Facebook at Mindframe Podcast, you can give us a share or a like. You can find us on Twitter at Mindframe Pod, and you can find us on Instagram at the Mindframe Podcast. So thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you soon with another wondrous episode. And remember, the Lariat is closing.